Welcome back to another episode of Antarctica Unfrozen, Season 2. Today we are taking a break from Antarctic science and inviting you to experience Antarctica for yourself through virtual reality. We are joined by Associate Professor Barbara Bollard, an Antarctic Heritage Trust General Manager, Operations and Communications, Francesca Ethorn. Together we invite you to explore Sir Edmund Hillary's Antarctic Hut through a new groundbreaking virtual reality experience developed by Antarctic Heritage Trust in partnership with Auckland University of Technology. Ultimately, technology like virtual reality exists to tell a story in the best possible way. The Transantarctic Expedition and the International Geophysical Year in 1957-58 is a tremendous story. Tune in for an exciting discussion on how Barbara and her team captured the data in Antarctica to develop this VR experience, how you can access it, and we also touch on Barbara's research on the identification, selection and environmental monitoring of protected areas in Antarctica using remote sensing technology and UAVs to map habitats and landscapes for conservation planning. We hope you enjoy today's episode and experience what life was like in Antarctica during the 1950s for yourself. Barbara, Francesca, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. Today we're talking all about VR in the world's harshest environment. So what is virtual reality? And in layman's terms, how is virtual reality developed? Well, thanks, Sinead, for having us today. So in a really simplistic way, virtual reality is a type of emerging technology, if you like, that is all about transporting you to another environment. And usually you'll do this by putting on some type of headset um, and through playing that game experience, if you like, um, it will take you into another place. And that could be anything from taking you to space, taking you into um, a different working environment, a different culture or country, or in the case of what Antarctic Heritage Trust has developed in partnership with Auckland University of Technology, taking you to Antarctica to explore Sir Edmund Hillary's Antarctic hut. Very cool. So the way that virtual reality is usually developed is, first of all, there'll be a group of people that will go and gather that data. And then from there, um, they will take that data and work with a team of designers to transport it into a gaming engine and to, to create the game, if you like. And there's um, lots of different types of skill sets that get involved here from a game design point of view. And that's everything from design, from storytelling, building the narrative, understanding all the technical aspects of virtual reality. So how do you make something feel fully immersive? Um, how do you make sure that everything is appearing as realistic as possible? How do you put it together to navigate it so that the end user journey feels seamless um, and immersive. So lots of different types of skill sets and hopefully through this podcast Barbara and I can shed a bit of light on how we've built something that's really quite unique. Very exciting. So what is the extent of post-production involved in creating a virtual reality experience like this one? Hi Shanae, it's Barbara here. Thank you for as well. Thank you for having us on this podcast. Well, as the person that collected the data, I think my, my job was the small bit. It took about seven days for us to scan the huts and take thousands and thousands of photographs. 
after doing that, the post-processing part is where it um, is a very interdisciplinary process, as, as Francesca just discussed. Um, it involves students, designers, um, the people that collected the data who have the experience in the location as well, but really just a whole team of people working together over many, many, many hours. It took us around two years for post-production for this project. Um, but if I pushed it into a condensed time frame, so it was end to end, that would be a one year full time work experience on this whole thing. We involve students. Um, they got to work very closely with Antarctic Heritage Trust with Francesca in developing the narrative. So we had students from a science background, as well as students from a technical or engineering type background, as well as students from design background. And we worked in partnership as well with a um, commercial company that developed VR and, and used, they worked with us as mentors and supporting this as well. So it was a fantastic process. In this process of post-production for me, um, it also developed a very strong partnership with a colleague of mine, Gregory Bennett, who is with this School of Art and Design. And he in particular inspired me and looked at, made me look at how I collect science data but from the perspective of using it for virtual reality. How cool. Very interdisciplinary. So Very did you travel down to Antarctica to capture this data for the experience of Hillary's Antarctic Heart? I did travel down. There was a team of four of us and every one of us had our role. We, before we went to Antarctica, because it is a very big deal to get there and it's a huge privilege and it takes at least a year of planning before you can actually go to the ice. Um, so we had pre-planned all of our scans. We knew exactly what we were going to. We hadn't physically been there, but we had um, seen the layout of the, of the building. We had a plan in place. We did a lot of training so that we could work seamlessly as a team to collect the data. That was one of the, the goals. We did an, an several trips, side trips while we were down there. So the, the core for this project was just really being prepared, really understanding our equipment. You send your equipment down to Antarctica around a month ahead of time. So you really need to know what you're doing and, and you've got a limited window of time. As I said, we had about seven days to collect this data. So we were very, very tight on that time frame. And so by the time we started collecting data, it was all planned. And it was quite strange and surreal to see these architectural plans turn into a real place <laughs> and actually physically go there and set up and do the work. Does that answer your question? Yeah, perfectly. That's really cool. So you must have had a quite close association with this. How, what did it feel like when you walked in there for the first time, having kind of already known what you were to expect, but this time actually experiencing it? It felt as if the team that had been there had only just left. It really felt to me as if Sir Edmund Hillary and, and the whole group of people were there, had just gone out to the next room and we walked in and we felt a part of that environment. It is so realistic and so well conserved that it, it's as if it was just being in use yesterday or a half an hour ago. So it was warm. I was surprised at you know, that it was not icy cold. <laughs> and, and I was surprised at how comfortable it was. And, it, and because we'd seen photos and we'd studied the plans, we kind of knew where everything was. But when you get down there and you see the equipment laid out, it's just this sense of awe and privilege to actually, you know, you feel like you're part of it. 
Amazing. So Francesca, why did the Antarctic Heritage Trust partner with Auckland University of Technology to create this interactive and fully immersive experience? Well, first, I'll just give you a little bit of context around who Antarctic Heritage Trust is. So we are an organisation that have been around since the late 1980s. We are a New Zealand-based charity, and we care for this remarkable global legacy of the early explorer expedition bases. So this includes Sir Ernest Shackleton's only Antarctic hut, Captain Robin Falcon Scott's huts in Antarctica, and in fact the very first buildings that were ever there by the Norwegian Karsten Borchgrevink. And of course this also includes the first building at New Zealand's Scott base, which is often referred to as Hillary's hut, or the Trans-Antarctic Expedition hut, or hut A. And so we were very fortunate to take on the caretaking role of conserving Hillary's hut and to raise money, um, around a million dollars in fact, to undertake that conservation process. And our team did that in 2016 um, so that it could be conserved and ready in time for Scott Base's 60th anniversary, which was in January 2017. So we had a team of around 12 people on the ice for three months. It took them almost 6,000 hours of conservation time on the ice in order to undertake that conservation work. And that's about making the building structurally sound, weather tight, and of course conserving the artifacts that are within the building. And there were around 600 artifacts that were left behind from the Trans-Antarctic Expedition and the International Geophysical Year and the early years of New Zealand's Antarctic program. So we were thrilled to be able to undertake that conservation work. Now the Trust also has a mandate to share the world's greatest polar exploration stories. And most people know, of course, that Redmond Hillary is a legendary Kiwi explorer, ascended um, Mount Everest in 1953 with Tenzing Norgay. But what a lot of people don't know is that in 1957, he led the New Zealand Party for the Commonwealth Trans-Antarctic Expedition um, to Antarctica, a team of 23 men, to support that Trans-Antarctic crossing that was being led by the British explorer Sir Vivian Fuchs. And he, in fact, um, with his team, made that first overland crossing crossing to the South Pole since Captain Robert Falcon Scott many decades earlier. And so at the time, this was an incredible feat of exploration and something that made Hillary and those men even more famous. And so it's such an incredible story when you think about these Ferguson tractors traversing um, almost 2,000 kilometres from Scott Base to the South Pole. It really is one of the world's best polar exploration stories. And so we're really excited to be able to share that uh, with the world. But particularly with New Zealanders, given the connection to Sir Edmund Hillary. We wanted to take the opportunity to share this with New Zealanders to celebrate our first presence as a country in Antarctica, um, an incredible science programme that we were part of with the International Geophysical Year that, of course, um, continues today, supported by Antarctica New Zealand. And so we looked at how we could partner up uh, with an organisation such as Auckland University of Technology to create this virtual reality experience. So first, we were very fortunate to be supported by Antarctica New Zealand in the logistics of being able to work in with Barbara and her team who were there um, uh, on another science mm. event with Antarctica New Zealand. Um, and that enabled us to effectively piggyback off that, if you like, and to take that extra time to um, capture the data at Hillary's heart. 
whilst we care for five of those historic bases in Antarctica, we actually picked Hillary's Hut to start with for the VR because it is located right at Scott Base. It has electricity, it's warm, as Barbara said, and it's actually a reasonably simple layout in terms of capturing that information. We also love the fact that it's directly connected to New Zealand's history. It's an iconic part of our presence in Antarctica. And we loved the idea of partnering with a New Zealand educational institution, uh, working with their students and staff so that we were able to um, create something that was unique, immersive and powerful. Excellent. So why do you both feel like virtual reality is such an important storytelling tool then? Well, I guess if I just continue, I think virtual reality, and particularly in the way that we've created this experience as a fully immersive and interactive experience, it has an ability to transport people to Antarctica in the virtual sense. And this is incredibly powerful. Um, and I just wanted to share briefly one of the moments in the project that was perhaps most poignant for me. Um, I had spent two years working on this project with Barbara and Greg and this amazing student team, and Staples VR, of course, our commercial production partner. And I felt like I knew the hut intimately in the digital sense. I'd spent many hours with the headset on. I knew where everything was located, all the different rooms, and had spent a lot of time exploring it and developing the narrative with the team. And I, um, in my role as General Manager of Operations and Communications at the Trust, I don't generally have an opportunity to travel to the ice. Um, our teams that go down there are qualified conservators and professionals uh, that work directly on these buildings. However, at the end of 2019, I had an opportunity to go along and work on the conservation team and help them with their annual monitoring and maintenance program. And as part of that, I was um, helping out with the monitoring program at Hillary's Hut. And I had an opportunity to walk in, actually by myself. And I still remember walking through the cold porch into the mess room and just absolutely being astounded at the similarities between the virtual reality experience that we created and the actual environment. And I'm aware that I'm one of the privileged few that's had an opportunity to actually step foot in Hillary's hut. But I, I stood there and I thought, yes, we have done this justice. And it was a wonderful feeling to know that this capturing, this photorealistic capturing of the environment on that day in January 2018 when Barbara and her team were there, <laughs> that we had managed to capture the essence of that and bring it into the VR. So I do really truly feel, having been lucky enough to go to the hut, to, to truly say hand on heart, when you do the virtual reality experience, it is as if you are there. It is that powerful. I think also storytelling and virtual reality go hand in hand hand about making places accessible. And if you look at some of the big uh, museums overseas and different cultural institutions, many of them are looking at how they use virtual reality and things like augmented reality to bring cultural heritage sites alive and to share them with people around the world. And this is such a wonderful thing because we are also globally connected now and often digitally connected that we're able to make sites that are inaccessible to people because of a location like Antarctica. Um, and obviously we're not wanting to encourage more people going to Antarctica, of course, that's an important conversation. But, but to be able to bring those sites, those artifacts, those stories back to people when it isn't readily accessible is, is powerful. I also think, just as a final point from me, 
the ability to inspire people around the stories of these spaces is such an important part of the work that we do at the Trust. And one of my favourite things about working there, actually, we are currently touring the virtual reality experience around New Zealand. We are taking it into schools. And thank you to our New Zealand schools sponsor, Dulux New Zealand, who's helping us do that. We're also taking it out to community venues as well. And being able to see school students take off the headset and sort of have to check themselves about where they are because they have in their minds gone off to Antarctica. They have been in the snowstorm. They have been through the hut. They have had opportunities to see exactly what Sarid and his team were doing to further science and exploration on the ice. And hopefully they've become inspired about um, what that means, the importance of Antarctica to the world. Perhaps it's made them think more about climate change, about being an ambassador for Antarctica, or of course, about wanting to explore themselves, to have that same explorer mindset about being curious about the world, wanting to go out and discover more about themselves and to explore and to come back and make the world a better place. And that there is the power of good storytelling and something that I've been so thrilled to be involved with. That's so incredible that you've been able to develop such an authentic, well, truly authentic experience for the youth of today and for older generations and everyone. It's, it's something for everyone. It's really exciting. How about you, Barbara? Well, I have to say, for me, I didn't really understand what I was getting into when I said, oh, yeah, let's do some virtual reality. It, to me, it was a byproduct of some of the research that I was doing. My focus is on environmental monitoring. And I thought as a scientist, wouldn't it be great to be able to immerse ourselves in these environments that we're studying and look at the world from a different perspective? So look at it from a three-dimensional immersive environment. I really didn't connect the dots that it would be so exciting to use for historic huts until I met with my colleague Gregory Bennett and we started talking about historical places and then it sort of snowballed from there and I reached out to Francesca. I did also reach out to the conservators and her team as well in previous seasons and said we should really do this. Wouldn't it be exciting to bring this alive? And I didn't fully appreciate how long and how much work was involved, but now I do. And it has completely transformed my work and the way I look at the world as well and the way I do my research. So just an incredible opportunity. And to hear Francesca talk about her experience when she walked into that hut, it just put goosebumps down my spine because that's exactly what we want. We want it to be someplace that people can go to because I accept and I know and we all know what a privilege it is to go to Antarctica and how difficult it is to go there. But to be able to share that and to be able to share such an incredible story is just, you know, it's sort of the penultimate thing you want to achieve in your life. So I'm thrilled to hear that. That's what it is for me. <laughs> Wonderful. And as we all know, Antarctica is the world's harshest environment. Well, it's considered the world's harshest environment. What were the main concerns, limitations and complications, I guess, associated with developing this virtual reality experience here? Would you like me to talk to that one? I had been down to Antarctica a couple of seasons, so I did understand before we went down this project, I understood the... Um, the weather limitations, the um, temperature limitations, my own limitations. <laughs> so I think it was good that we had had that experience. But one of the things that you think about is that you have to pre-plan everything. Every step of the project is pre-planned. You do not have the luxury of time and you do not have the luxury to just nip back down and rescan something if it didn't work. 
So you have to double your work effort and work hard and work consistently. And again, you can't overemphasize how important it is to work as a team and have really good communication between your team members and full trust within your team. So those are the sorts of things that you do to prepare to go to the ice. Well, one of the things that no one prepared me for that season was we got on the aircraft, which was a Hercules, and we got halfway down to the ice. We're flying out of Christchurch and a very noisy old plane that you get your earplugs for and no seats. You're just on mesh and you're <laughs> trying to sleep. And suddenly I felt the entire plane turn and uh, we were like, uh-oh, what's going on? We, did, we experienced something called a boomerang, which everyone <laughs> gets to experience at least once or twice in their career at Antarctica. Well, our boomerang was because the hydraulics were leaking out. So we were at the halfway point and turned back to Christchurch. So that was terrifying. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I was like, this is not a good start to this no. season. <laughs> but we got there and it ended up being one of our more successful seasons. It was fantastic. And you get there, you've got to be brief. There's so much safety around working in Antarctica. We have an incredible team of people at Antarctica, New Zealand that support us with logistics, keeping us safe, keeping us warm, keeping us fed. Um, and, and then, you know, when we go out in the field, we've got reporting that we have to do on a regular basis. All of our equipment has to be prepped for very cold weather. So, you know, how do you deal with minus 20 with electronic gear and things like that? And we all have to be protected as well. So it's terrifying. It's exciting. Um, in summary, it's, it's one of those amazing opportunities that we get in life. And it's a privilege to have had this opportunity. To add another perhaps limitation or complication in there, and it was something that we worked through oh, yes. <laughs> um, with Barbara, and that was around these sites um, are have the highest level of protection um, under the Antarctic Treaty, of course, and Hillary's Hut is what did become a historic monument in 2001. Um, and part of the way that we treat these sites is that when you're in them as a visitor, you obviously don't touch anything. So they're, they're sort of like living museums in many ways, where you don't you go, go and pick up something that's on the shelf to have a closer look. It's um, a, a place where, of course, you are incredibly respectful. And that is because so many of these artifacts are very fragile and the treatments that our conservatives have given them um, need to um, be, left, be left alone. One of the challenges, I think, Barbara, wasn't it, was thinking about when you needed to um, capture the data with the LIDAR scan is what you could move, what you couldn't move, um, and to agree those conversations with our con conservation team and our experts up front and the way that certain things would need to be handled. And it's just another layer of detail that has to be sorted off the ice because when you're actually there, you don't have that, that um, expertise from our team on hand, if you like. Um, so thinking about the narrative and the stories that we want uh, to bring to people and the, the elements that we would like to make immersive. So for example, in the kitchen, we have a kitchen mixer that we wanted to be able to turn on um, so that the user got a sense of how it would have sounded and how it would have looked when it was working. So that had to be captured in a particular way. We needed to agree that with the conservation team that it was going to be okay to do so um, and also to make sure we could do it in a 
realistic way. And so that was a, a really big learning for me. So going beyond what would tell a good story and make it exciting for the user, but also to be very respectful of our conservation processes and to ensure that we were working within the mandates that, that we're permitted to do as well. So um, lots and lots of learning there, I think, on a, on a pilot program like this and something that gives us good ability to think about for hopefully the next series of work. That's a really good point, Francesca. There was so much preparation that we had leading up to the event. And, you know, even when we were in the hut, making sure we just wore socks and gloves and, and making sure that everything was protected. And we already had that conversation and planning prior to going down about what we could, you know, move if we had to move, but most of it we didn't have to, which was wonderful. We found ways to get around to the backside of objects and, and do, do it that way. So it was really really important to have added that thank you those are all very interesting points to know it's not you're right it, there's that added level of protection and you've got to be super careful and you've got limited time and there's only so much you could do um did any of that time because of your boomerang get taken off the trip or were you fortunate enough not to have to work 24 hours a day to make up the <laughs> lost time <laughs> uh, it it added a couple it it removed a couple of days from our trip Right. Um, and we found ourselves at day 21 because we were doing other projects as well. We found ourselves at day 21. One of the teams said, can we please have a day off? I've worked 21 days in a row. <laughs> so they got, oh, yeah, maybe we should. And then it snowed. So you do actually get a few days off when it snows from the bulk of the work we do is from tents in the, in the field. So, yeah. It, it did impact. It didn't impact on this project. We had the time and we were given the time because everyone acknowledged how important it was to gather this information. So Barbara, what is your main area of research and what other Antarctic expeditions have you been involved in? My main area of research is in conservation um, biology or conservation planning. So that means that I am interested in mapping protected areas and looking at what makes them unique and why they're unique. So I'm interested in declaring these protected areas, ongoing monitoring and protection. So that's my big picture, what I do <laughs> and, and what I teach. And so it's a bit of um, spatial ecology. It's a bit of conservation and landscape ecology. So I applied to go to Antarctica um, in 2014 and was lucky to receive an Ansari bid or an Ansari grant. And that was to explore the use of novel drone technology for conservation planning and mapping in protected areas. And I, I received it, and my first season that I went into the field was in 2015. Um, prior to 2015, I had partnered with other research groups that were um, going to the ice, and many of my drones went, and some of our drone pilots from my lab went as well. But um, my first stepping on the ice was in that 2015 season. And then I went to Cape Evans, uh, which is where... Um, Scott's Hut is located as well. I also went to um, another ASPA called um, Botany Bay. And I really, my primary focus has always been on mapping the landscape and understanding how we can use drones or UAVs to map landscape scale um, protected areas. So we have done quite a lot of work in that area. And as I said previously, you know, one of the things we discovered is that um, we're looking at 3D models of landscape and the information that I'm collecting through the drones is sort of that first step in processing a virtual reality experience. So it was just 
oper- you know, a wonderful opportunity to be able to do that. So I have been a few times. I've had um, amazing experiences. I work with a fantastic team of people. And um, I'm also involved in a big Antarctic research program with, the, um, with an, uh, several Australian universities. And we're starting to plan for our, our future Antarctic expeditions to different parts of Antarctica going forward as well as back to the dry valleys and, and so forth. That's very exciting. So where yeah. in Antarctica have you been already? Just in the Ross Sea region or have you been over to the peninsula? And where do you plan to go in the future? Oh, well, the sky's the limit, right? <laughs> so I have only been to the Ross Sea region and into the dry valleys. Um, I, in the future, um, we're talking about the peninsula with the Chilean program, hopefully, and with the Australian program, um, we're talking about some of their locations as well. So that's, that's our forward planning. And we're very lucky in that, you know, we've, we're one of the few teams in the world that have flown UAVs doing systematic surveys of Antarctic protected areas. So we have been invited into several different locations in the future to do that same sort of work. Cool. And just for our listeners that aren't aware, what does UAV stand for? Unmanned aerial vehicle. So uh, they're aircraft that fly by waypoint navigation. Mm -hmm. So that is by a GPS coordinate. Um, And when you do a survey of an area, you fly from waypoint to waypoint in a a survey grid. So it's a bit like mowing mowing the lawn, but in the sky. (laughs) So you want to do nice, tidy lines. and, And then you can stitch all that imagery together to create 3D models of landscapes. That's really fascinating. So yeah, it's exciting. Professional opinion: What do you think makes UAV drones valuable to Antarctic science? They're incredibly valuable, which is why I felt that it was a, t- a tool that needed to be used in Antarctica in areas that are extremely fragile and vulnerable to human impacts. You need to find ways to minimize that human impacts. The drone flies over an area and it minimizes how much time is needed to be spent in the field and how many people need to go into the field walking on those fragile systems. I had heard in in my conservation role that you would have teams of 20 or so scientists all trampling an area that takes over 100 years or so to create that crust and that soil. So once you start breaking that crust, it starts to erode and you get lots of problems with erosion. And that concerned me. As a conservationist, that concerns me. As a scientist, it concerns me. We need to find better ways to minimize our human impact. So to me, the drones were that way. And they have proven to be that way because we keep getting asked back season after season to fly different protected areas. Um, It means that we can cut down a field season from six weeks with 20 or so people to three days with one or two people. Um, flying over the landscape and the drone doing the majority of the surveying. The other thing that's happened, it's completely transformed the way the data resolution. Um, We've gone from, you know, estimating areas of vegetation to knowing areas of vegetation in, you know, a one to to five centimeter scale. So, you know, the scales previously were tens of, you know, meters yeah. <laughs> and now we're down to centimeters and sub centimeter in many cases so it has completely transformed the data quality the precision the accuracy and the resolution and it's also at that same time minimized our human impact and that to me is is success and so it's it's very successful 
Exactly. That's key. Being able to minimize the, I guess, the need for logistics and for getting people down there for extended periods of time. And albeit and our impact, you know, as scientists, you know, we, we create impact. We're human. Yeah. We walk (laughs) and we tramp. These are really fragile systems that have taken, you know, centuries to form. And it just takes one footstep in the wrong place to destroy it. Exactly. So, you're so right. So with yeah. respect to both virtual reality and these UAV drones, what do these two types of tech, fa- what challenges do these two types of tech face to create more progress in Antarctica? And how do you believe we use both of these types of tech for maximum impact in a conservation sense? I think we're just, this is the sky's the limit. I think we're just starting on this journey of combining those two forms of tech. Um, for me, it's, you know, it's just opening up a whole new world. Our world over the past 12 months has been closed to travel, closed to exploration. And this is an even better way of getting it to, to people so they can connect with it. I think Francesca dealt with this question extremely well in looking at how, you know, VR is going to transform the way we experience places. Not everyone can get there and, and there's no way we can in this current climate. <laughs> this is a way of bringing Antarctica to people and bringing it alive. And when you connect with a place that is so special and so unique, you're more prepared to conserve it. You're more prepared to invest the energy and the thought process and the finances to put, to basically protect an area that is so special. And I think, yeah, to build on that for, for the trust mission around conserving, sharing and encouraging the spirit of exploration, we want to connect with that next generation so that they understand this legacy that we are caring for in Antarctica, this global legacy with these early explorer expedition bases and virtual reality becomes one way that we're able to engage the next generation with these places and spaces and these incredible stories. And so it does become a very powerful medium, as Barbara is saying. One of the big challenges for us in particular is that it's expensive to make these types of um, experiences, to make them powerful and immersive. It costs a lot of money. And in this case, we were incredibly fortunate to receive uh, principal sponsorship for the project from Ryman Healthcare. And that actually enabled us to go ahead and to purchase the virtual reality kits and equipment so that we can take it out to schools and to community venues around New Zealand to also work with Barbara and her team and to sponsor some student internships over the summer break so that they could help um, work with the data and so if we didn't have that type of sponsorship from the likes of Ryman and uh, the likes of Dulux and of course partnership sponsorship from Antarctica New Zealand and Staples VR and that truly collaborative effort with an organization like AUT it just would be commercially um, so cost prohibitive for us to even begin to step into the space so it's a pilot program for us we want to do more of it we're seeking support <laughs> actively so if you're interested contact yes. us but that is that's one of the big challenges is being able to fund these types of experiences and then of course as Barbara said the logistics um, of being able to actually go there and to do it in a way that um, fits the program and is sustainable Um, and we're so grateful to Antarctica New Zealand support as we've mentioned already uh, to enable us to do that out of Christchurch New Zealand. And I think it's also that passion too I mean None of this would have happened if we hadn't all shared that same vision and the passion to get this done and the, the, you know, the belief in what we were doing and knowing that it was for the common good and everyone could engage. That's really, really special. I mean, there's always room for growth, but it definitely sounds like we're already using this technology 
and it is having maximum impact, whether that be for conservation and science like Barbara discussed or storytelling or conservation, even with, you know, displaying the huts that are down there and, you know, for people that can't travel down themselves, it's all very new and exciting and emerging and it's only going to get better. Absolutely. So just to, I guess, finish off the conversation, I'd love to let people know where they can access these experiences. Great. So first and foremost, we are going to be touring this fully immersive experience around New Zealand through community venues um, and particularly through schools. So if that is something that you think, yes, I'd love you to come to my local library or museum or my school, please go to our website at nzaht.org. Fill in the registration form, someone on the team will be in touch. We're bringing it to schools through our Inspiring Explorers program, and we are so excited to continue that in 2021. We're starting to book up, so do get in touch if it's something that you're keen on. If you would like to download the experience today, because you can't wait any further, um, we do have a an app that you can download, Antarctic Heritage Trust VR, and you can just download that on your mobile device um, through Google Play or through the App Store for Apple. If you happen to have an HTC Vive virtual reality headset, you can download and play this experience on Steam. All of this information is available on our website, nzaht.org. We have lots of video content, photo galleries, and heaps of stories around the early explorers um, and what they were doing with science and exploration on the ice. So I'd really encourage you to head there and find out more if this topic has interested you. And we're just about to release an education toolkit that is a free resource for teachers all around New Zealand. So keep an eye out for that in Term 1. Well, thank you so much, guys. It's been lovely to have you on the podcast and talk to you you. about, I guess, something that has been a really successful interdisciplinary and collaborative project between a charitable trust um, and a university. I think it's been widely successful and I'm very excited to follow the uh, rollout of the VR. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Sinead. It's been great. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to learn and listen. More information about the episode and guest can be found in the show notes for those interested. And please leave a review if you've enjoyed tuning in. Subscribe to Antarctica Unfrozen wherever you listen to keep up to date on new guests, topics and ideas of the icy environmental kind. This season was made possible thanks to Pride Conservation, a boutique social enterprise from Aotearoa, New Zealand, on a mission to contribute to the conservation movement both here at home and globally. For more information and to help be part of the movement, check out www.prideconservation.co.nz. That's it for now. I'm Shanae Monty. And I'm Harry Seeger. And, and until, until next time, time stay cool. Stay cool.